Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in today's episode I'm joined by Britain's longest continuously serving female Member of Parliament. Since she was first elected as a Labour MP in 1982, she has been politics' most prominent champion for women's rights. And after 28 years on the front bench, she's given an insider's account of a life in Parliament in her autobiography, A Woman's Work. She's brought along five objects that have influenced her career and her book. She's Harriet Harman. Harriet, welcome. Hi. It's great to have you here. And I have to say, I found your book an absolute page turner. I couldn't put it down. I was hooked. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank you. So, Harriet, you've spent your career fighting for equality for women, bringing women's issues to the heart of the Labour Party. Why did you decide to tell your story now? I'd always sworn I would never write a memoir. Mm. And I'd always denounced my male colleagues who I'd see sitting in cabinet meetings writing their diaries. And I'd Mm. think, uh, could you please just focus on the fact that we are in the cabinet here? We're supposed to be Mm. running the country. Could you just focus on what we need to do rather than your place in history? And I used to be very sniffy about it and holier than thou about it and denounce memoirs as vanity projects. So this is a bit of a U-turn, like a screeching U-turn. But what happened is, as my colleagues from that time in the Labour government, the men, obviously, wrote their memoirs, I would sort of glance at them and i think, where are the 100 women MPs who came into Parliament in 1997 and changed the face of politics? Where is the childcare which went from a service just for families where children were beaten to a universal service for everybody. Where's this striving against domestic violence? I thought, well, if I don't write about it, nobody will. And the other thing is, is that if you look in the pictures, you know, when people look at autobiographies, usually the first thing, if they're in a bookshop or something like that, they turn to the pictures. And there are no women in these autobiographies unless they are their wives or women who are working for them. And I thought, this is not the story of politics over the last 30 years that's in their memoirs somebody better write their memoirs to put this straight. Oh, it perhaps better be me. So I thought, well, I better write some history here because otherwise all what women have done and the massive change in women's lives will be hidden from history. Absolutely. And I have to say, it does not come across at all like any form of vanity project because it's not an autobiography where you're talking about your life. This is very much talking about the women's movement. For women everywhere, I'm so glad that you have put it down. Let's go back to where it all started with the first extract from the audiobook of a woman's work, read by yourself. My mother qualified as a barrister, but gave it up when she married my father and had children. She became a full-time wife and mother, as most women did if their husband earned enough to support the family and her barrister's wig and black robe were unceremoniously consigned to our dressing-up box. Years later, when we'd left school, she, with my father's encouragement, retrained as a solicitor. It was easier for a woman to be a solicitor rather than a barrister. Barristers get work through a solicitor, and in those days, the predominantly male solicitors were reluctant to send work to a woman barrister, fearing that their clients would think they were being given only second best. I vividly remember one morning seeing my mother studying a law book she had propped up against the back of the electric stove, while my father, 
who had by this time retired, was reading the morning paper, my mother was cooking his breakfast, kippers, and preparing his supper, curry. The smell was terrible. I thought, you won't catch me doing that. She says that hearing about her distant relative, Louisa Martindale, who was a suffragette, had been a big influence on her. It had given my mother the surprising and subversive idea that women could do things. Though Louisa had had to remain unmarried in order to do what she did, I never thought of myself as being particularly influenced by my mother. On the contrary, I was one of many in my generation who were in rebellion against the lives our mothers ended up leading. My life was certainly not going to be one dominated by the wifely duties of cooking and looking after a husband. We didn't really discuss politics at home, probably to avoid arguments with my father, who was an old-fashioned one-nation Tory. But looking back, it can't be a coincidence that so much of my politics echoes my mother's. You talk in the book about your mother standing for election. Did your father have any opposition to her standing? Do you remember? Well, I think that it was more about the time that it took because her responsibilities as a housewife were to have his dinner on the table and to be keeping the home in order mm. and, you know, keeping an eye on all of us. And the point about being a candidate is you're out in the evenings knocking on doors, going to meetings, and therefore, time-wise, the incompatibility was just a showstopper. So she stood once for what was then the London County Council as a Liberal candidate, and she stood once as a parliamentary candidate. But after that, obviously, our father didn't want her to be doing that anymore, um, and she gave it up. But she kept her interest in politics and is still a member of the Lib Dems. But in a way, you know, if she'd have been in our generation, I'm sure she would have been an MP, but it was just going to be too much. So it wasn't a choice. It was just almost like an inevitability. Which leads us neatly on to your first object, because it is, in fact, her election address. It is. And there's me and my three sisters in the picture with my mum. And, you know, I was born into the sisterhood. I mm. mean, the women's movement was... <laughs> the sisterhood, if you like, politically that I grew up in. But I was one of four sisters who were a great influence on me. And here we are in this picture of my mother's election address. What year was this? This was in 1964. And she talks about being a part-time worker at the Citizens Advice Bureau. She'd been a barrister. I remember stuffing this election address into envelopes at the kitchen table, but we didn't read it because it was just not cool to be interested in anything no. your mother was doing. <laughs> you know, we were quite happy to stuff envelopes for her. But, you know, whatever she was doing in her life, that was fine for her. But it was going to be nothing to do with what we were going to be doing. So it was interesting to fish it out and see. You know, they always say, oh, you always turn into your mother. Oh, my <laughs> word. You know, politically, it's all there. <laughs> Not really, but I just felt slightly unoriginal. And when you write a book like this, it quite surprises you about yourself. I was quite surprised how really identical my politics was to my mother's. It is really uncanny to look back at what my mother was saying and what she was standing up for at the time 
and to see how pretty much identical it is to what I came <laughs> to be doing. You know, the emphasis she's got when she stood as a Liberal candidate, a Liberal candidate rather than Labour, but when she stood as a Liberal candidate, all her emphasis on equality of opportunity and education, which came to be very much the sort of arguments that I adopted, thinking, of course, it was all my own original thought. <laughs> so I probably had the best of all worlds. I thought I was doing it all myself. It turns out I was very much putting forward ideas that my mother had held very passionately but unable to be bringing into politics. She had none of the opportunities I did. She was very unusual in that she went to university. Very few people went to university in those days. She was born in 1918. Very few people went to university. Even fewer women went to university. And when she went to Oxford to do law, there was only three in wow. her year. And the criminal law teacher refused to teach them, think it was a waste of time to teach women the law. And they had to bring down a teacher from London. It's astounding. So many of the things that I read, my jaw nearly hit the floor because we take so much for granted now and not that long ago things were so very different. What impact did it have on you when your mother gave up her career then in order to fulfil her duties as a middle-class housewife and when she gave up the politics? Well, she gave up her career more or less when she started having us. And so by the time I was born, that was well in the background. And we didn't think twice mm. about what it meant that her horsehair barrister's wig and her black gown was in our dressing up box. We just didn't give it a second thought. I think it's only on reflection that seems quite poignant to me. Yeah. The 1960s was a time where we were all demanding change. You know, when I qualified as a solicitor and looked in the Law Society Gazette, which is where all the jobs were advertised, they'd say the right man for job mm. in X firm would be this, that and the other. And I remember my sister, who was qualifying as a lawyer at about the same time as me, ringing up a law firm. This was before the Sex Discrimination Act, which outlawed this sort of overt discrimination. And she'd heard about this firm that had a woman solicitor. So she thought, well, I'll apply there because obviously it's not a men-only firm. So she rang them up and said, I see you've got an ad. I'd like to apply. And they said, no, no, well, you can't apply because you're a woman. And she said, but you've already got a woman. And they said, yeah, it, <laughs> that's why. If we had another one, you'd only fight. The idea was that women would be rivalrous and fight. The idea of the women's movement mm. was that there was sisterliness and solidarity. In those days, women were seen as kind of competing with each other, usually, of course, not for a job, but for a husband. Yes. So, you know, it was very, very different a times. Different mentality. And we were going to change it all. I mean, all of this we thought was terrible. Our mothers might have put up with it. We weren't going to. Mm. Now, let's hear another extract from the audiobook of a woman's work. And this is where you talk about first becoming involved in the women's movement. Of all the things that were changing for me in the 70s, it was the women's movement which was to have the biggest and most far-reaching impact. This was a time when women were thoroughly constrained, told what we could and more often couldn't do. You can't expect the same pay as a man. You can't expect to be treated equally at work. You can't expect men to play their part at home. You can't object if your husband beats you. You can't expect to be taken seriously intellectually. You can't expect to be valued if you're not young and pretty. You doubly can't expect to be taken seriously intellectually if you are. And I, along with many young women back then, had an equally strong 
corresponding conviction that we were not going to put up with it. The women's movement was developing rapidly, finding support among both middle-class and working-class women. At its heart was the idea that women were not inferior to men and should not be subordinate to them. We wanted to be equal. The movement had many different strands, but perhaps three were dominant. The radical feminists involved in consciousness raising, those women who were keen to tackle issues of domestic violence, and those campaigning for women's rights. You were clearly very passionate about equal rights in your work as a lawyer. You fought for civil liberties as the legal officer at Liberty, which was then called the National Council for Civil Liberties. You were actually put under surveillance, weren't you, by the security services at one point? Well, Liberty, as it's called now, is very much a respected and accepted organisation. But in those days, it was regarded as subversive Mm. and downright dangerous. And, I mean, I was prosecuted by the government because of a case I took against the Home Office in relation to prisoners' rights, which is an incredible thing, really, to think that as a new solicitor that the government would prosecute me for taking a case against the Home Office. Fortunately, I got off, but only after seven years of appeal after appeal after you appeal. You had to go to the European... I had to go to the European Court mm. of Human Rights, finally, having been found guilty in the British courts, and also put under surveillance because... At that point, we were arguing against internment in Northern Ireland and that was seen as dangerous and subversive and both myself and Patricia Hewitt, who was General Secretary of Liberty at the time, who later went on to become an MP and a Cabinet Minister, and also Jack Dromey, my husband, who was on the National Council for Civil Liberties executive, we were all put under surveillance. I've asked to see my file, but I've never yet been able to see it. And I actually asked when I was in the Cabinet. I thought, well, here I am. I'm in the Cabinet I can at least be trusted now, surely, to see my own file. No, not able to see it. Surely, and also, you have to be able well, no, to legally. You know, security services and all that, I'd still be happy to see it if they were prepared to give it to me. And also I became the Solicitor General. I became myself one of the law officers, yes. the Deputy to the Attorney General. So I was myself doing prosecutions for contempt and such like, still not able to see my file. So it shows in a way that at that time those challenges... And we were challenging across the board, not just on women, but any time the government was overbearing and abusing its powers, we were going to stand up against it and they were going to fight back. In NCCL, we argued for not only tougher laws on domestic violence, we argued for a Human Rights Act, which we got eventually. We argued for a Freedom of Information Act, which we got eventually. So we were really pushing for all the things that when we finally got into government in 1997, the Labour government did so much of. Which leads us on to your next object, which is your Labour rosette, which you've had presumably for many years from about 1981. I mean, in a way, it's quite a weird thing when you think about it, a sort of ruffled (laughs) um, fabric, shiny rosette with Labour and usually the name of the candidate in the middle of it. And you put it on your shoulder. But if you're going to be knocking on doors or accosting people in the street, you need to kind of give them the sense of why you're doing it because it's quite a bizarre thing to do to be knocking on people's doors and trying to talk to them about politics. So it's your badge. 
It's your badge that everybody can see. Who's that group of people walking down the street? Oh, they're Labour people. And who's that person with that mad rosette on? That must be the candidate. So this rosette has been all around the country. It's been everywhere. It's been in Scotland, Wales, every part of England. When I first was a candidate, and for many years I had my kids often would come, I'd take them with me campaigning, they'd be hanging onto the tassels <laughs> of the rosette, it had baby dribble on it, you know, I'd be going to endless party dinners, it'd have chicken curry dropped <laughs> on it. And it was my badge of pride yes. of being Labour. This was our family. We were standing up for social justice. There were fantastic members all over the country. And it's a great network, not just of fantastic councillors and MPs, but actually party members and supporters all around the country. So it's been an incredible thing to have as part of your work to be able to have people that you can work with in every single city, town and village of this country and to be able to travel the country with your rosette on. Mm. I mean, that's been an incredible thing, how lucky that is. Yeah, because it's a signifier and it shows that you're all like-minded people and yes. as are the people that it you're meeting It is the tribe. The... It is the tribe. I mean, people often talk disparagingly about tribal politics and big up cross-party politics, but actually... The fundamental basis for a democracy is different parties putting forward different propositions. And this rosette said, we were not Tories, mm. far from it, over our dead bodies, we were Labour. Absolutely. Well, let's hear again from the audiobook of a woman's work. In this extract, you remember the moment you found out that you were going to be a candidate in a by-election whilst you were pregnant and on your honeymoon in France. After our wedding, Jack and I sped off for a holiday in France. We certainly never called it a honeymoon. But I told the Peckham Labour Party I'd be away and we drove around La Rochelle, Arcachon and Les Landes. It's a lovely area, but for me, still racked as I was with pregnancy nausea, the seafood, undercooked pigeon breasts and ripe smelly cheese for which it's famous were a torture. All I wanted was dry bread and water. Jack stopped the car regularly so I could lean out and be sick. One day we had a coffee, water for me, by a beautiful lake. Having been out of touch with the UK for so long and starved of news, we were excited to see in a newsagent's a three-day-old copy of The Times. Jack read it first, and as he did, I saw in the front page, News in Brief section, a headline for a story inside. Labour MP dies. Quick, I said, my heart sinking. Who is it? Sadly, it was Harry Lambourne. Instead of him retiring at the general election some years in the future, there would have to be a by-election to fill the vacancy and elect the new MP within a couple of months. I was Labour's selected candidate, but I was pregnant. There'd never been a pregnant candidate in a general election before, let alone in the heightened atmosphere of a by-election. I was delighted to have been selected as a candidate in the safe Labour seat, and the last thing I wanted was to give it up. But the thought of having a baby was daunting enough. To be pregnant in a by-election felt impossible. I wavered. 
But of course, the whole idea behind the women's movement was to break new ground and challenge the notion of all the things women supposedly couldn't do. And Jack was adamant that I shouldn't step down. I called the local party secretary. We commiserated over Harry's death and discussed the likely date of the by-election and the campaign. But although my pregnancy was well known to everyone, neither of us mentioned it. We just didn't know how to talk about it. It was the elephant in the room on that call, and by the time we returned from France, I felt as heavy as an elephant, and I was only going to get bigger. We didn't cut short our holiday and return for the funeral, and I regret that. Even though, in those days, it was much harder to change ferry bookings and cancel hotels, it would have been proper to show my respect and attend the funeral of the MP who I was going to take over from, alongside his grieving family and all the party members who were going to work so hard to get me elected. At that time, I overdid the rejection of tradition and ceremony. At my next antenatal appointment at Guy's Hospital, I asked the obstetrician whether she thought it was all right for me to stand in the forthcoming by-election, by which time I'd be five months pregnant. She asked what it entailed and I told her, working all hours, going up and down stairs all day and very little sleep. She said that was excellent exercise and I'd get no sleep when the baby came anyway, so it would be good practice. I don't know how you did it. I mean... Because presumably you were getting morning sickness, or was it just the French food that brought on the nausea? I had morning sickness, afternoon sickness, evening sickness, oh. and it wasn't just the sort of first three months. It was right through. Oh my but goodness. I also had that sort of pregnancy exhaustion. But the thing was is that because we were deciding that all those things that everybody would said you couldn't do, we were not going to accept the notion you couldn't do them. We didn't have any sensible judgment about what you really shouldn't do mm. because there was no sort of boundaries. It's uncharted territory. It was uncharted. And I didn't have really any idea what it was going to be like to be an MP. I knew what MPs did theoretically, but I didn't have any friends who were MPs or anything like that. So I didn't have any inside understanding. So I had no idea what the demands of being an MP were. And I had no idea what the demands of being a mother were. So really, being determined to do it was not in any way based on any understanding of what it would entail but it was like if people were going to say you couldn't do it we were going to do it which is just as well because I think if you had known you wouldn't have done it <laughs> because you know no matter what when you have your first baby I just remember just thinking this is the best kept secret ever it is totally mad and then becoming an MP, similar. I mean, I've seen my sister go through it. So the two together, I, I, I'm in awe of you, actually. But I think sometimes you can overplan things because things have a way of really interfering with the best laid plans. In a way, there is something about just getting on with I it. Totally you know, agree. you might as well, if you've got the blessing of being able to have a baby and have a partner who wants a baby then there's something about just getting on with it. And if an opportunity, a fantastic opportunity to be an MP is there, seize it. You know, sometimes the best thing is just to face forward and think, well, let's try and manage it as best we can, but let's do it in a way. 
I'm quite glad, although I do look back, as you say, and think, my goodness me, that was absolutely mad. I'm quite glad I didn't second-guess myself. So you joined the 97% male House of Commons in 1982, and then you went on to have three children while you were in Parliament. You write about feeling haunted by accusations that your career choice would make you an unfit mother. How long did that fear stay with you? Um, Till about today. (laughs) I mean, the idea that you could be a good mother but also have a very demanding job, well, there was no evidence that that was possible at all. And plenty of people who said it wasn't possible, who'd say you're either going to be rubbish at your work or rubbish as a mother or probably rubbish at both. And, in fact, when I got elected and got into the House of Commons and got all the correspondence, half the post was congratulating me and wishing me well for the future. And half was saying, you shouldn't be doing this. You're pregnant. You're going to be a mother. Your children will truant from school. So basically, there were plenty of people making overt accusations Mm. that what you are doing is bad for your children. And, you know, as a mother, you always think that everything you're doing is potentially bad for your children, you know. And therefore, it did create an uncertainty and a worry. And because there weren't other mothers in Parliament doing the same thing, I was alone, racked with my guilt. But, you know, and other women were doing the same in the legal profession or academia or, you know, in ordinary workplaces up and down the country. And I think we were all very anxious about whether or not it was possible to be any sort of decent mother as well as working hard in a cause you believed in. You campaigned for change both inside and outside of Parliament, introducing the National Child Care Strategy and the Equality Act and changing the law on domestic violence, as well as championing the all-important all-women shortlists, setting up the first parliamentary Labour Party women's group and campaigning for longer maternity leave and maternity pay. I mean, that's a phenomenal amount that you have got to your credits. I'm so glad that you never gave it all up. Did, did you ever feel like jacking it all in? Well, there's two things in a way. Firstly, people said, OK, now you're in here, you've got to show you're a proper MP and get into the mainstream and stop banging on about women. You know, people will think you're just one-track-minded, that you're narrow, that you're not really a proper politician. And I really thought, as somebody who was from the women's movement, I couldn't get into Parliament as somebody who was from the women's movement and then turn my back on that. I mean, that's why I was there. So I did bang on about women. And because I was there for so long and still there, it meant I was able to take forward all of those things. But also the hours of the House of Commons were mad in those days. Mm. It would start at 2.30 and often finish after one o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was absolutely mad. So it was like... Together with my maternal guilt ever-present and my physical exhaustion, I often wanted to get out. But the reason why I didn't was because I felt that having broken into Parliament and said, right, women can do this, if I said, oh, no, actually, I can't, it's all too much, I felt it would be everybody thereafter would say, actually, you can't do it because she tried and she couldn't. So I felt once I put my foot forward and picked up the flag, I couldn't drop it down. Once you decide to be a pioneer and all shouty about it, you've got to do it. No, totally. So let's move on to your next object, which is a recipe for apple crumble. So family is amazing and a Mm. wonderful thing. 
And when my kids were little, my dad used to drive my mum over to us and in the boot of the car would be a big casserole for a Sunday night and we'd all sit down and eat it because I was too exhausted to, you know, do anything. Mm. And so we'd all have a nice meal that mum had cooked, you know, chilli con carne or shepherd's pie or something like that. And she'd also have another one for during the week. So this was called like Meals on Wheels. Yeah. And I think if you feel that things are quite chaotic at home, you really cling to traditions and structure. It makes you feel you might be a reasonable parent against all the evidence. So they would do that. And then obviously, as they got older, we do it now. And it's a very valued institution, the Sunday evening meal. And Delia Smith has been at my side <laughs> during all of these times. So what I've got is I've got my um, Delia Smith Complete Illustrated Cookery course where the pages are all stuck together with flour <laughs> and sugar and everything like that, especially when it comes to the basic crumble topping recipe. Yes, so it's symbolic of the family life that you're yeah. mixing with the work life. Well, let's dip back into the audiobook. In this extract, you talk about the changes you wanted to see made in a male-dominated Labour Party. The women's movement wanted to do more than propose political change. We wanted to play our part in carrying it out, too. We backed the Labour Party, but we were quite clear that we also wanted to change it, to challenge the male hierarchy and make Labour a political party fit to represent the aspirations of women and one which would thereby become a government fit for a country in which women regarded themselves as equal. Like every aspect of society, the Labour Party was male-dominated from top to bottom. Though we women worked hard as grassroots members of the party, the decision-making was done by men, whether in Parliament, in the National Executive Committee, in local councils or in the constituency committees. But in the spirit of the women's movement, it was anathema to us that we, as women, would remain outsiders and should forever be petitioning men rather than making the decisions ourselves. We wanted to be on the inside, in Parliament, in the NEC and in councils, participating in the decision-making. It was our enormous ambition that we would change politics and through this the world of work, the law and family life. We were inspired by the sense that our cause was just, so the scale of the odds we were facing served only to make us more determined. Your next object is a fantastic-looking scrapbook. In fact, several. I shall pass them over to you. Well-loved scrapbooks heaving at the seams. So these scrapbooks... Basically, I was very worried that my local party would think that because I had been pregnant, then had a baby, then be pregnant again, then had another baby, then been pregnant again and then had a baby, that I wasn't going to be doing my job properly. Mm. And obviously it's incredibly important what you do as a local MP in your local area and for the Labour Party around the country. And therefore I wanted them to know that I was working hard. So the way I did that is clip all the papers and paste them into a big children's scrapbook. And then I would take these to the monthly meetings 
and the party members could see what I'd done so that nobody could say that I wasn't doing my job because mm. there it all was. I also did a written monthly report every year from 1981 right to, and I still do that, in order to tell them what I'm doing. And when I came to decide to write my memoirs, I had all this material pasted chronologically into scrapbooks showing me what I was doing, pictures, press statements from every single month of every single year from 1981. So it's like archive material, really. So without these, you wouldn't have been able to write the book, would you? Not without these or my written monthly reports I did to my constituency because when you're doing things from day to day you can't remember what you did no. yesterday let alone the year before especially as a mum of three absolutely <laughs> everything's in a world you can't you're always looking ahead you're never looking back well let's hear again from the audiobook of a woman's work here you talk about the changes that still need to be made it was only with concerted effort over so many years that we made labor into the party for women as well as for men and we need to work to maintain that effort. Without that, we will slip back, as we did when we were again in the position of having a men-only leadership team when I stood down as deputy leader in 2015. And there is nothing to stop women's policy concerns sliding down the agenda other than women in the party making sure they don't. Although it was hard for me in the PLP, in many ways it was straightforward the resistance I encountered was active. So many men openly opposed progress for women and were eager to tell me to my face. It's difficult for the new women Labour MPs when men indignantly declare themselves to be feminists and every bit as much in support of women's equality as the women themselves and yet somehow still contrive to block change. This is the scourge of passive resistance. The reality is that unless Labour is and is seen to be the party for women, women's progress will stall and slip back, not just in the Labour Party, but more widely. The Conservatives have never advanced women's rights, and there's no reason to believe they'll do so now. Labour remains the only alternative government to the Tories, so if there's to be further government impetus for political progress, it has to be from a future Labour government. And unless Labour is and is seen to be the party for women, we will not win women's votes, we will be unable to get into government again, and so we will not be able to make changes for women. The opportunities for my generation of women have been so much greater than for our mothers, for whom the domestic role was so dominant. But with our new opportunities have come difficult personal choices about how to balance work and home. Now, few would argue in favour of discrimination against women or say that they oppose women's equality. But there is still a failure to acknowledge the extent to which inequality still exists and how much more needs to change. The demands of the women's movement are now, in principle, accepted. And that is a great step forward from when they were seen as subversive or denounced as outlandish. But they have yet to be met in practice. Few would now seek to justify inequality between men and women. So it's time it ended. That was our final clip from the audiobook of a woman's work. And now it's time for our final object. Tell me about this jacket that we have here. 
a very smart cream-coloured jacket with very uh, sturdy shoulder pads that definitely say this lady means business. And intimidating lapels, to reinforce the point. I think that for women, the issue of what to wear, especially if you're a woman pioneering into a new field, was an issue that it, it wasn't for men. So when I first became an MP... Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister. The sort of matrons of Parliament, few as they were, wore either tweedy suits and silk blouses with pussycat bows, Mm. which, you know, as a 30-year-old woman, obviously I was not going to be wearing. So I kind of drifted in in Laura Ashley floral frocks and looked, I thought, ridiculous. And I didn't feel (laughs) like I was... I felt like out of place enough as it was, Mm. but my clothes made me even more out of place. So... Then there came the issue of power dressing. The idea was that if you dressed smartly and had big shoulder pads, you would feel more powerful and then you'd be more powerful. And at one level, it's kind of ridiculous, that. But actually, there is something about feeling as if you're looking like a professional. I wanted my constituents to feel they could rely on me and I would help solve their problems. And therefore, this final object is my lucky jacket with its lucky with shoulder its pads amazingly <laughs> huge shoulder pads and I wore it the first time I answered for the government in Prime Minister's questions right. at the dispatch box everybody you know on the Conservative side was howling at me the Labour side were all hearts in their mouths hoping that I wouldn't fall flat on my face I was wearing my lucky jacket and it all went off great I wore it when I became elected deputy leader and had to step onto the stage with Gordon Brown, leader of the Labour Party, and blow me down, I was deputy leader. But I was wearing (laughs) my lucky jacket and my shoulder pads were absolutely out there. So tell us just quickly, what changes would you still like to see, both in the Labour Party and the country more generally? Well, I think that one of the things is if you look at income, the difference in income between women and men, not just pay but pensions and all the other issues that make up income, women are still at something like 55% of men. I mean, this is incredible, the income inequality between men and women, which denotes the fact that although people now espouse the concept of equality, we don't have it in practice. So I think what we need is a whole load of changes at work. We need really strong enforcement of the Equal Pay Act and the Equality Act, uh, which I brought in in 2010, to make sure that employers publishes the pay gap workplace by workplace Mm. so people can sit down and say, why is there this pay gap in our workplace? What are we going to do about it? One of the new rights I think we need at work is that there needs to be time off for sick children. Mm. There's time off for a mother who's at work. There's time off for a father who's at work. If they're sick... But what about if they're child sick? You can't leave a four-year-old at home on their own. You've got to take time off work. There's Mm. no right to do that. So there should be a right to take off time for sick children. I think a woman should be able to share her maternity leave, not only with the husband or father, which she does have now, but also with the grandparents. A lot of grandparents are helping and would like to be able to take time off to help with a new baby. Anyway... I've got hundreds of things which I think are the next agenda going forward because although we've done a whole load of things compared to what the situation was before, we've still got a long way to go. Yes, absolutely. You're not planning on hanging up your your beautiful cream jacket anytime soon, are you? What is next for you? Well, I am looking to the new generation of women in Parliament and just as 
I felt I had to invent everything myself and my generation felt we were going to forge our own uh, way forward. This new generation, they will be forging their own way forward. And I want so much to encourage and support them. And I'm going to really restrain myself from telling them what I think they should be doing (laughs) because they've got to find their own way forward. I do think there is a whole agenda about older women because... When is a woman in her prime? You know, when when she's young at work, she's distracting the pretty and therefore not to be taken seriously, but possibly to be taken out on a date. Then when she's got children and she's a mother, well, she's got three children, far too many. She's a write-off. Mm. Then when she's older, when her children are grown up, she's past it. It's like, when is her prime at work? Actually... There is discrimination against women because they're older. And many women, they do come into their prime when they're older because mm. their children have grown up. Yes. So I think that there is an older women's agenda, which many of us are promoting. And in fact, we did have a commission on older women. And I think many of the issues there need to be taken forward. But there is a new generation of younger women and I've got to make sure that I support them but not tell them what to do. Because what I did was in my time and... They've got to make their own yeah. way. And times have changed. And, but also we're in an ageing population now. So that window after your kids have left home is getting bigger and bigger and women will be able to work longer and longer. Um, well, and many of them, unfortunately, are having to work longer and longer. Yes, that's true. Well, one thing you can do for the next generation of women, they can all read your book because that will really help them to sort of get a good foundation of what can be done. It has been fascinating talking to you. The book is absolutely brilliant, but I shall hold you up no longer. Thank you so much, Harriet Harman. Thank you. This March and April, join Harriet Harman when she'll be discussing her book, A Woman's Work, with Decca Aikenhead in London, Polly Toynbee in Brighton, Dame Margaret Beckett in Nottingham, Yvette Cooper in Sheffield, Dame Margaret Hodge in Norwich, and Jackie Ashley in Cambridge. For ticket information, please visit www.penguin.co.uk forward slash live. New from Penguin Random House Audio. As Deputy Prime Minister of Britain's first coalition government in over 50 years, Nick Clegg has witnessed a change in politics from the inside. In politics, he offers a frank account of his experiences, from his spectacular rise in the 2010 election to a brutal defeat in 2015, from his early years as an MEP in Brussels to the tumultuous fallout of Britain's EU referendum, and puts the case for a new politics based on reason and compromise. Indeed, David Cameron and I found ourselves grappling with serious disagreements within a matter of days. Instead, it was a sincere attempt to underline that a government composed of two parties could have big ambitions and expectations. Either way, it is clear that in the spinning zoetrope that depicted the story of the formation of the coalition, the Rose Garden press conference took on a much greater significance than I realised at the time. For many people whose hopes had been raised, possibly excessively, by the prospect of a new politics at the time of the 2010 general election, the relaxed atmosphere of the Rose Garden press conference looked anything but new. By the time of the third snapshot moment, I had completely lost control of the story 
that was being told about me. As thousands of protesters descended on Whitehall on the 10th of November 2010, I was due to go to an event at the National Liberal Club at the top end of Whitehall near Trafalgar Square. I was told by my protection team to duck down and lie flat on the back seat of my car as we travelled there in case I was spotted by the protesters who were milling around in the Whitehall traffic. As my effigy was later being burned on Whitehall to the chants of Clegg, Clegg, shame on you, shame on you for turning blue, I was smuggled back to the Cabinet Office like a guilty secret via an underground tunnel from the Ministry of Defence. In just seven months, rapturous crowds outside a pub in the West Midlands had morphed into an angry mob in the heart of Whitehall. How on earth had this happened? Politics is written and narrated by Nick Clegg. Available now to download and own on Audible and iTunes.